Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Hey y'all, welcome to Straight Out of Limitations. I am your host, Colleen Heaton, and today we're talking with a true warrior and my friend, Marsha Bayer. Hey, Marsha. Hey, Colleen. Welcome. Thank you for being here. I know oh, you. So much. I know you <laughs> and I adore you, but would you please introduce yourself and your family to our audience? Yeah. Um, so, like you said, my name is Marsha. Um, I'm married to my college sweetheart, Jonathan. Um, and we live here in Marina. Um, we have four kiddos that are 12, 11, 9, and 7. Wow. Um, we have three boys, and then our youngest is our daughter. So, and their names are James, Titus, Noah, and Hannah. That's oldest to youngest. That's a lot of kids, Marsha. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Large family. Um, okay, you you married your college sweetheart, and um, because I know you, I know that y'all got married in 2010 and went into the Foster to Adopt program. Can you, did, yep. Can you tell me what that journey has been like? Um, Eye-opening uh, is the first thing that comes to mind. Um, we didn't know much about, about it going into it. Um, but we felt a calling towards it. And, um, so heartbreaking, eye-opening, um, exhausting. <laughs> um, but, you know, I always say adoption comes from brokenness. Um, in order for me to adopt my children, another family had to break first. Right. Um, and so out of that brokenness comes beauty. Um, and that is our family. Um, and that's the way we see it. We acknowledge that it comes from brokenness. We acknowledge that it comes from a hard place. Um, and so we work through all those things together as a family to create our beautiful family. That is a beautiful way to phrase it. I've never heard it um, described quite like that. Yeah, a lot of times people will say things like, oh, your kids are so lucky. Um, and it's a really big pet peeve um, because I can't imagine that they would look them in the face and say, you know, your mom abandoned you, your mom chose drugs over you, you're so lucky. Um, right. And so people say it, you know, to them all the time, you're so lucky, and they kind of roll their eyes um, because we don't see it that way. Um, luck would have been them staying in their original families and having an amazing life. Um, we are blessed that this is the way God brought our family together, and out of all of that brokenness, I think my children are going to be world changers. Um, I definitely think so. <laughs> but it didn't come from luck. Um, and so we just always acknowledge that because we, we want to acknowledge the struggle that they have had. You have, you and your husband, Jonathan have fostered 11 children. We have, yeah. Um, Noah came to you as the fourth placement. 
Yeah, he was our fourth uh, foster placement that we had had. Can you kind of tell me what those early days were like with him? Uh, yeah, so um, from the moment Noah was laid in our arms, we met Noah on a Wednesday, and that Friday we spent a weekend in the hospital. Um, so we knew pretty early on that there was lots going on with him. Um, when he was placed in his in my arms, I was told he has a heart condition um, and he needs to see a doctor. Um, and the CPS worker and I just kind of like are darting eyes at each other like, what? Um, and so we took him to the pediatrician and we made the decision he needed to be admitted to the hospital to get a deeper understanding of what was going on. So he was diagnosed with uh, bicuspid aortic valve with stenosis. Um, so his aortic valve, um, it did not form right. Uh, during during development, and so it'll need to be surgically repaired. And so stenosis means the lining of his aortic valve is thinning, um, and then he also has regurgitation, which means it leaks. So his valve doesn't close all the way, and it leaks. And by um, looking at Noah and and watching him and his activities <laughs> and things, one would have no idea whatsoever. Right. Yeah, yeah, he's 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 all or nothing, um, and and he he really tries to not allow it to slow him down. Um, you know, he yeah, he's all or nothing, and so uh, their goal is for him to be done growing before they do surgery. If they had to do surgery earlier, it would have to be replaced once he was done growing. So um, that's why they try to wait as long as they can on these repairs. Um, so until he's done with his teen years, um, it would be their ideal situation. Um, y'all, he was, he was with y'all for about a year when your fourth and fifth placements came into your life. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. So we were fostering him and we found out about that diagnosis and then, um, he was still developmentally delayed. He was not talking. He was not sitting up. He was not rolling over. He was really struggling with feeding. So we had asked the agency not to give us any replacements. This is our first long-term placement, first time parent. Um, and so we really just wanted to focus on him. Um, and so we had actually started the process of getting him into the autism center in Houston, uh, at Texas Children's at the Meyer Center for Autism. Right a week later, we got a phone call about two little boys, um, that needed a placement. And so we prayed about it and we accepted them and those ended up being our son's names and titles. So you... You suddenly have three boys. Three boys, um, and all very close in age. Right, yes. Um, and so you think, okay, um, our family's complete. We're going we're gonna to do this. Um, yeah, I really wrestled with God. I was like, I really asked for a girl. I, I signed up for foster care, and I asked, you know, I asked for a girl. So I was, I was pretty sad, but I was content with being a boy mom. And you and Jonathan closed your home. Um, we did. Meaning that you weren't going to foster anymore. And right. you actually bought a home for a family of five. We did. We did. Yeah, we bought another home just in another neighborhood around the corner from us that was more suited for three little boys, um, had extra bedrooms and space and that kind of stuff. And um, our, our CPS worker came out to relicense us because their cases were not closed yet. We hadn't officially adopted them yet. They were all in adoption placement, but we hadn't closed them yet. And um, she asked if she could increase our number. Uh, we had been licensed for three kids, and she asked if we, she could increase it. And I 
was just like, yeah, you know, she was like, you know, if you increase your license, you can help other families out and do respite and that kind of stuff. So, okay, whatever. I honestly didn't even think anything about it until our license came in the mail and it said we were licensed for six. Wow. Uh, said, there's no way we're taking six kids. I was like, no, 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 it's just a formality, no big deal. And then there was Hannah. And then there was Hannah. Yeah, um, about two weeks later, two, three weeks later, we um, after we moved and got our license, we got a call about a little girl. Um, it was supposed to be temporary. Her foster parents were undergoing some medical things, and so it was going to be temporary. So I said, sure, no problem. Um, not, I would love to care for a little girl, love on a little girl for a while. And um, I took her to a visit with her bio parents, and when I came out, or when they came out, when they brought her out from the visit, um, the CPS worker handed her back to me and said, when can I come to your house to do your placement visit? And I shook my head. I, I had three toddlers and an infant who was trying to load them up into a stroller. And I said, no, 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 you're confused. CPS gets things backwards all the time. You know, they're overworked. So no, 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 she's going back to the other foster home next weekend. And she said, no, she's not. I, I spoke to your husband. She's staying with you. Surprise. Uh, yeah, so I, I was very surprised, um, but the way the Lord works is, is mysterious. That was in September of 2014, um, and she was diagnosed with cancer a month later. And you and I have, have talked about this um, multiple times, but you fully believe that the battle that has been fought since she came into your arms, uh, that that she would not have survived that. That is not a battle that she would have won because she would not have had um, the resources to no, wage yeah. that war. You know, and, and the other thing that I, I didn't quite wrap my head around for a, a long time was that a child that was free for adoption in the foster care system that was diagnosed with cancer would have sat in a medical facility for a long time. Not, not many people go out looking to adopt a child with a, a severe condition, degenerative, that would require lifelong hospitalizations and lifelong care. And y'all didn't specifically go looking for this, but it found you. Not at all. We weren't even licensed for it. Um, after she was diagnosed, when they went to release her from the hospital, we had to actually fight. They, they tried to move her to um, a medical a medical home because there are medical foster homes, um, and they tried to move her to that, and we, we fought. We said, no, 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 we'll do whatever it takes. Um, you know, no, we, we feel like she is our daughter. We feel like we're supposed to do this for her. Um, let's, let's go back just a little bit to when um, you were at the doctor's appointment when they told you about uh, her having yeah, a brain so tumor. So I hadn't even scheduled the doctor's appointment her previous foster mom had. Um, and she, when she brought me all of her stuff when they were moving her to us, she handed me a, a business card, and it was like, oh, here she has this appointment. Um, and she had little notes scribbled all over it telling me, like, what to go where and when because it was an MRI, and she, she couldn't eat, could it be NCO. I didn't know what any of that meant. I, I hadn't, I hadn't, I hadn't, I wasn't a medical mom. And um, so I went, I went to the doctor. I had lined up childcare for the boys. We, I had to be at the doctor at like 6 a.m. And so it was just very unusual, not something I'd done before. And um, went to the doctor. She, she was an itty-bitty baby. She was nine months old. They put her in the little MRI machine. Um, and I went and sat in the lobby. They came and got me. So she's done. Um, and they handed me a piece of paper. Your appointment's at like 11. I was like, oh, okay, free time. Um, so I, I put her in her 
car seat and I was going to give her a bottle and go grab some breakfast and some coffee. I hadn't even gotten out of the building yet. And I got a phone call um, and they called me by her name, her, her old last name and said, Hey, can you come on, come on up to the clinic? And I was like, Oh, sure. I thought I, I was like, I won the lottery. We're getting this done early. I texted the babysitter. Hey, guess what? We're going to the clinic. We'll be done soon. Um, I got off the elevator and there was somebody there waiting me and they escorted me back to the room. And I thought, first class service, man. And then I walked in the room and there was a tall, slender man in a white coat waiting for us. And he said, um, I need you to sit down. Um, he pulled up a picture on the screen and showed me your spine and said, that's a tumor running from the bottom of her brainstem down to the lower part of her spinal cord. And I, I need to take it out and I need to take it out right now. Um, and I just, I just, I was just frozen. I, I have actually, I took a picture. I don't know why I took a picture, but I took a selfie because, you know, what else do us millennials do? And I was just sitting there frozen, just holding this baby wrapped in my arms. And he kept saying these words over and over again to me. And I, I couldn't process how there could be something inside of her um, that was killing her. And um, I just kept, <laughs> I kept saying, no, she needs a bottle. No, she needs a bottle. And um, they were trying to escort me. They were trying to move me out of the clinic over to go inpatient. And I just, I finally just broke down. I, I sat down in a chair and I was just sobbing. And um, they said, is there someone we can call? And um, they called my husband. He left work, came running up to the hospital, um, called the babysitter. And um, they, um, so sorry. Um, they came up, Johnson came up to the hospital. We were admitted, and they took her back for surgery around 5 a.m. the next morning. Um, it was a 22-hour long surgery. Um, I'll, I'll never forget any of it. They let my parents sit in there with me um, and Jonathan, and we sat in this tiny room waiting um, the whole time. I couldn't eat. My parents were trying to get me to eat. And, um, yeah, it, it's, it's a memory that we'll have for the rest of our life. And in your mind, you are already her mother, and they're telling you this is life-threatening, and your concern is what I need to do is give her a bottle. Yeah, yeah. She, she yeah. needs Even a bottle. Even when we got to the room, when we got to the room, um, I was like, oh, can somebody repeat this for me? And they're like, ma'am, ma'am, she can't eat. And I, I just, I, I wasn't a medical mom. I, I hadn't done it before. I didn't, I, I had never seen an IV placed on a nine-month-old. Um, it just, it just wasn't the norm for me. Now I could probably place an IV on a nine month old, but you know, it, it wasn't the norm. And that's just what sticks out to me was how, um, shocking it was. Um, and I think it's probably why I'm so passionate about being there for families when they go through it. And Um, you're trying to process in your mind, what, what does all of this mean? But still your basic instinct is, I can provide sustenance for her to keep her alive. And yes. that is what's coming through. And, and, you know, God bless medical professionals. Like, they, you know, but for them, it's normal. Like, we were on the neuro-oncology unit in, in the hospital, and I remember walking up and down the halls and seeing all these bald babies. And, and that's the norm for them, and, and it is the norm for me now. But just the shock of it, I could barely walk down the hallway and trying to process, you know, what does this look like? The neurosurgeon asked me, are you, are you going to keep her? <laughs> I'll never forget those words. I still give him a hard time about it because in foster care, it's <laughs> definitely not, are you going to keep her? He meant, are you going to continue to foster her? Where is her case going? Um, that kind of stuff. And, um, and I just looked at him and was like, I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm not in charge of that. 
Um, but he wanted to know because she was going to require lifelong care. Um, and he, and he was looking out for her. He had seen her already in other foster homes and, and he was looking out for her. Uh, you've told me about the relationship that, that you've developed with this neurosurgeon and um, the amazing work that he has done. How yeah. different How different would life be for so many special needs families if they had somebody like that who who could stop for just a minute and and really take time and listen and care and be real with families instead of going from patient to patient, family to family? Had yeah, I was doing some research. I um, I had some meetings with some high up people at uh, Texas Children's last week, and I was doing some research. You know, the typical turnover rate, t- turnover time they would like in a clinic to make the most money is twelve point five minutes a visit. Um, but for kids that are complex, like all of ours in the middle limitation family, you know, there's not very much you can accomplish in twelve point five minutes. Um, and it's the time that it takes to spend with these kids is just is, is a lot and, and it causes or it causes it costs you know the hospitals more money but when you can take the time when you can um we were looking at getting Hannah new braces last week and, and a doctor sat down and explained to me why he wanted one brace over another brace and the doctors I'd had three or four doctors giving me three or four different opinions and I didn't I didn't understand I, I was frustrated I was getting different opinions but he sat down and he explained it to me it took him about 10 minutes to explain the entire thing to me but then I understood and I was like oh okay yeah that's what I want that makes sense you know when, when they can take the time to explain these things to us it relieves relieves our stress it makes right. our life easier it makes us able to make decisions when you've got five six seven eight nine specialists that all have a different opinion it puts so much pressure and stress on the parents um, which then affects our ability to be parents and parent our children. Um, and when doctors can take the time to be there for the patient, not only in a medical sense, but in a social, emotional, whole child approach, it can improve outcomes. Absolutely. I have, I've, yes, I've seen that in so many of our families. Um, okay, let's let's move a little bit forward with, with the the bear family story um (laughs) yeah the 22-hour surgery and then the chemo and through all of that you're still processing not just her adoption but three other adoptions yeah so she was going through chemo um through all of their adoptions so james and titus's adoption finished first um so they were adopted in december of 2014. So she was diagnosed in October. They were, uh, they were adopted in December. Um, her case was closed in January, but Noah's adoption came about first. Um, Noah was adopted in March and then she was adopted literally less than a month later, two weeks later in April. And you told me that she was of course there with you at the adoption, all of this, but she should have been in the hospital. That's yeah. that's how poor her health was at the time. So actually, so um, the Monday, Noah was adopted on a Friday. The Monday, she had her fourth spinal surgery to remove more tumor that had grown. So she had her fourth spinal surgery on that Monday, was released from the hospital Thursday night so that we could go to Noah's adoption at 9 a.m. the next day. And then she was readmitted to the hospital that Saturday for fluids and observation just because she was so weak from chemo. 
you know how um, all your entire story just blows my mind every time I hear it. Um, and and I always think of a million more questions. Um, but you said that you were in Houston. Yeah. What what brought you to Waco? So that night um, when we got back from her adoption, um, Johnson got a call um, from a Waco number. And um, it was his old boss that he had worked with when he was in college at Baylor, um, offering him a job at Baylor, his dream job that he had always wanted since he was in college, um, to come back and be the assistant director of internal audit. Um, which at the time he was working for a big four accounting company in Houston. We loved, they were an amazing company. They were amazing all throughout her diagnosis and foster care and everything. But um, he worked a ton um, during the season. He was gone 4 a.m. to 2 a.m. He was home maybe two or three hours a night um, and traveling all the time, just all the time. Um, and so it was a blessing. It was a huge blessing. And so we packed up and moved a month later. And, but you moved from Houston, where your children had had their care, to Central Waco. Texas, where yeah. the care um, was just not the same. Not the same. We, we knew it going into it. We had met a couple of families um, while we had been at Texas Children's that traveled for care. Um, we had talked to them extensively. We had talked to the doctors extensively. Um, we knew it was going to be a sacrifice, but it, it meant that Jonathan would be around and his work life balance would be much better um and we were kind of hoping for the small town little bit laid back lifestyle would would suit us all um give us a good place to start this was the first place where our children weren't known as foster kids they were known as the Bayers um and so we were we were excited about it um so you you just kind of write it into um the plan we're going to have to travel for care uh, so what what does a typical day look like for you and your family if you have to go to Houston, if you have to go to the hospital, and how often do you make those trips? So right when we moved to Waco, we actually had to drive one to two times a week because um, she had chemo every Monday, and then she usually needed labs and blood by Thursday. Um, so for a year and a half, so for 18 months, we drove to Houston every single Monday. Um so that, that, that was a journey. But since she has stopped chemo and her tumors are stable, she, her tumors have been stable for four and a half years. Um, so she has had no tumor growth for four and a half years. Um, so she's been off chemo. Uh, now we go anywhere from one to three, sometimes four times a month. With the invent of telehealth, it's been amazing. We have not had to go as much, which has been amazing. But Typically, we'll try to get like a 9, 10 o'clock time slot, um, which means we have to get up around 3.30 a.m. in Waco, um, get up, give her her medicine, give her breathing treatment, get her ready, get her in her wheelchair, get her in the car. Um, it's about a three-and-a-half-hour drive from our door in Lorena to the Texas Children's Door. We do have to stop. We'll have to stop and do medical care, change her, give her more meds. Um, so we'll stop at a gas station. Um and stop, do that, and then we'll continue on to the hospital and go. We usually try to schedule more than one appointment at a time, so that way we're not just driving down for one thing. So we'll usually have two or three appointments, labs, tests, you know, whatever we need to get done. And we'll also usually try to schedule one of the boys' appointments at the same time, so that way we can knock out as many things at a time as possible. So we'll usually take everybody 
before COVID, um, if one of the kiddos didn't have an appointment, we would leave them here in town with my in-laws. Um, and so that was helpful. But with COVID, we're just taking everybody. Um, so that's a typical day when we go to the hospital. We usually, because it's three and a half hours back home, um, we usually are done at the hospital around three or four, which means we get to sit in Houston traffic um, to get out of the medical center. And then it takes us another three hours from there. So we're usually home between eight and nine. So we'll get up at 3 a.m. and we get home between eight and nine. That's, that's just unheard of. No family should have to do this. Um, and we've talked about Noah's um, heart and we've talked about Hannah. Um, tell us a little bit about your your other two, Titus and James. Sure, yeah. So um, when Titus came to us, he was sick. Um, and the caseworker just told me, oh, he has a virus. It'll pass. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this poor little child, um, you know, took care of him, took him to the doctor. They said it was a virus. Um, he had a 105 degree temperature for four days and I was just really not comfortable with it, but it eventually stopped and went away. And then the next month it happened again. And then the next month it happened again. And I was like, why does this child keep getting sick every single month about 28 to 38, 30 days later? So after lots and lots of testing, he actually has a really rare genetic condition. Um, it is called FMLA, familiar in Mediterranean fever syndrome. So it's a genetic condition. It's an autoimmune condition. His body attacks itself every 28 days. Um, and so anytime there's an excess of white blood cells in your body, it tells yourself you know, you're sick and it ramps up and he gets joint swelling and joint pains and stomach aches and really bad headaches and extremely high fever. It's got up to 108. They have treatment for it. He takes um, immune suppressive therapy to suppress his immune system to stop it from attacking itself. That's a lot. Yeah. And, he, and he's healthy. And he's been fever-free for almost two years. As soon as he hits the two-year mark, we can start reducing his um, immune suppression and see. Um, they want to wait till non-COVID time um, because every time he has a fever, he has to have labs run because all of his inflammation markers and white count and all that kind of stuff get extremely high. And it's just not safe to do when there's a virus running rampant. Um, and so, yeah, so as soon as COVID is over, if he's remained fever-free, um, we can start reducing his therapies. So he's, he gets an injection every week. Is, is that done locally or you give the injection? Oh, no, I do, I, I do the injection. Okay. Um, and when you went to Baylor, what, what did you major in? Uh, Totem Family Studies uh, major or focusing in uh, Totem Family Ministry. Not medicine. No, no medical. No, no, no. In fact, I had to take one um, science in, at Baylor called Rocks for Jocks. It's uh, <laughs> a geology class that all the athletes take because it's super easy. That's, that's the science I took. Wow. I don't even know what to say to that. <laughs> well, you have three yeah. boys and you learned about rocks. So. Right. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe there's a correlation there. Um, And so each of your children have very specific needs and you've, you've come back to Waco from Houston and, and you have this, this family and you're doing life 
with them and you and Jonathan and you're you're doing everything you can to provide for them. Tell me what it was like when you realized that y'all hadn't planned to go back to Houston and three of the four children that you adopted in Houston were not born there and you were there to the day of the adoption being complete. Yeah, when we first moved to Waco, you know, we were driving to Houston so often. And it just it just felt like Waco wasn't even my home. Um, just because her care was there. She was so sick. Um, she got really sick uh, in the middle of her chemo, and they didn't know what was wrong with her. And they told us, you know, she wasn't going to make it. And we just, we just were like, we were literally thinking, you know, where are we going to bury our daughter? Um, we were told to make arrangements and I just, I couldn't picture, and this is the mind of, of a medically fragile mom. I couldn't picture visiting my daughter's graveside in Waco. Um, and I just, I didn't feel like this was home. And, and as she's miraculously gotten treatments and gotten better and we've lived here and we've been here, I just, it just hit me about two years ago. This, this is home. This is where we are. Yes, this community needs help from a medical standpoint. Yes, this community needs help from an advocacy standpoint. But that, that's my calling. That, that's why I'm here. You know, God did all of this. He took Jonathan and I to Houston when we weren't planning on being there. Brought our kids to Houston when they weren't from there. For us to be there all at the exact same time to adjust them. To then turn around and move back to Waco. You know, he went through all of this work to bring us together and then bring us to Waco. Um, and that's just kind of something, cause even our kids have struggled with it. You know, our, my parents are in Houston, we have cousins in Houston, we have other friends and family in Houston. And, you know, we've kind of just said, this is our home. We're, we're going to make it accessible. We're going to make it all that we want it to be because this is where we're supposed to be. I'm so happy that, that y'all are here and that our, our paths have crossed, um, what let's talk about how we met what brought you to no limitations Hannah was super sick super sick we hadn't gone to church in a long time just because she was so sick we weren't allowed to go to church we went to church um we decided to go out to eat lunch after going to church something else we didn't do very often um we were sitting at La Fiesta and um Noah who, who was very blunt with his words saw a little girl across the restaurant in a wheelchair getting a feed uh, through, through a feeding tube. He said, Mommy, Mommy, look, she's got a feeding tube like Hannah. And he lifts up Hannah's shirt. And he's like pointing at Hannah's feeding tube and motioning at these strangers. And I'm like, Noah, stop, Noah, stop. You know, we don't know them. They don't want to see our kids feeding tube. You're showing the whole restaurant our kids feeding tube. And I was so embarrassed. I was just like sitting in the, the little booth, like looking the other direction. And Jonathan's like kicking me under the table. And I'm like, what? And I look up and there's this woman there. And she's got her daughter in a wheelchair and she pushed her over. And she said, hi, my name's Amy McCarty. This is my daughter, Kiva. Um, have you heard of no limitation? Wow. And I said, well, I think I've heard the therapist mention it before, but I don't really understand what it is. My daughter's got a lot of medical needs. And she's like looking at me and looking at Kiva and looking at me and looking at Kiva like, so does mine. Um, and I remember just, just sitting there staring at Kiva and just wanting to hold her and just wanting to know her story and just wanting to meet them. And, um, yeah, Amy and I have been exceptionally close friends ever since. Multiple times when you and I have been on the phone, you have 
either said that you had been on the phone with Amy or that Amy called you while we were on the phone or that you had a call with her later that day. We we talk every day. In fact, yesterday I called her and she only called me back once. We didn't talk again. And then then this morning she called me at 7 and said, sorry, I didn't call you back again last night. And I thought, it's really okay. That's one of the beautiful things about No Limitations is the connections and the community. And yes, we are offering a sports, but it is a tool to bring people together to help each other navigate through the challenging times and to celebrate the good times. Yeah. 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 I just, yeah, I, you know, I know you didn't ask, but my, my greatest memory is, um, last year, 2020, um, the early February, Hannah was life-flighted to Houston, unconscious, intubated, seizing. Her body temperature was like 93 degrees. Um, they wouldn't let me ride in the helicopter with her, so I had to drive my booty off with my kids in the car to Houston. And, you know, not two weeks later, she was on the basketball court in her no-limitations jersey with the biggest smile on her face, and she's so proud. She has a, that picture blown up in her room like a five-by-eight, and she always said, Hannah, play basketball? Can I play basketball? My jersey? Where's my? I mean, she just and just the way she lights up when she talks about it—it's so deep and meaningful to her. Um, she might not be able to tell us what it means to her, but all you have to do is look at her face. Look at the face, and and it was not any basketball game on any basketball court. It was halftime of a Lady Bears game at Baylor University in the Farrell Center. And we were able to take our No Limitations Adaptive Goals down and play a game in front of the crowd and show that our athletes have no limitations. And yeah. that that's one of my favorite memories of all the things that we've done because it was a big stage and not one of our athletes backed down. Not, not one of them hesitated. Noah said, I went to the big side. I was with the big kids. I was so scared they were going to make fun of me. But then I knew they wouldn't. And I made a shot. He tells that story over and over and over again to anybody that will listen. And the picture of Hannah out there playing is great. There's also a picture of Noah, and I believe his tongue is hanging out, something <laughs> similar to Michael Jordan <laughs> while yeah. he's shooting. Shooting, um, yep. And so, it, all the concentration. He was, he was so, I mean, for, he just kept saying, but this is where the Baylor Bears play. This is where the Baylor, yes, no, you get to play where, and he still tells people, and every time he tells them, he's still in such shock that he gets to play where the Baylor Bears play. Those are the kinds of opportunities and memories that come about through No Limitations, the connections that we're able to make. Not many kids know his age can say I've been down on the court in a Baylor Bears basketball game. Well, and especially because they have ball boys and stuff like that. And we, we go to games regularly and my kids, my kids see them and, and no one knows that's not something he could do. Hannah knows that's not something she could do. And so it's just a limitation for them that a typically developing child could do that and they can't. And this is an opportunity for them to say, yeah, but if you get to play a game on the court, I got to play a game on the court. Um, during halftime. Um, so, I mean, it just it just breaks all barriers. Um, I'm so happy that, that y'all have 
those memories. And we've talked about uh, how much Hannah is in the hospital. Um, tell our listeners about uh, the blanket and the meaning behind the blanket that you have for Hannah when she's in the hospital. Yeah, so I can't take credit for it. Um, another medical mom uh, suggested it to me, um, whose kiddos in the hospital a lot. But it's a, a picture blanket. Like um, I made it on, you know, one of those. I think I made it on Walgreens.com where you can just put pictures on it. Um, and it's probably got 20, 30 pictures on it. And every single picture is a picture of Hannah doing something. Um, that way when she's intubated, when she's sedated, when she's seizing, it's, I put it right across her, right across her from her abdomen down to her feet so that every single medical professional that walks into the room, when they go to do something to my daughter, they've got these pictures of her staring up at them. And we have not ever once had someone come in the room and not comment on the blanket. Um, the picture in the dead center is the one of her on the basketball court. And then there's one of her kicking a soccer ball. There's one of her with her brothers being goofy. So that they can see that she's not just a patient. She's not just a number. She's not just a diagnosis. She's a human with a life and a life that matters. Um, and the impact that it's had on the doctors is just mind-blowing. We were at rounds one day, and they were switching over teams. And the ICU attending walked into the room, ripped the blanket off of her bed. And Hannah was like, what are you doing? That's my blanket. And she took it out to the hallway to show the residents. Um, and was because it was a new team resident coming on, and she was like, I just want to show you this so you can see when we're talking about her that we're listing off all these things she can't do, but you need to focus on the things that she can do, and that's why we're helping her. Is that not a no limitation story? Like, yeah, like I just, and they all ask me, well, and so this is Baylor College of Medicine that we're at, and so they see Baylor all over this. So I point at that picture and I say, that's her playing basketball on the Baylor court, who a lot of these students went to Baylor University. And it just it just gives them that connection. You know, I think it was you that said that when we were talking to different people. When they have a connection with someone, they work so much harder. They, they, they give so much more of themselves because they feel that connection. And even just being basketball, soccer, they're like, oh, I play soccer. She can play soccer. And it just instantly gives them that connection. Right. And it... it give some relativity to peers also. Um, like when, yes. Noah, when Noah's talking to his to peers, um, they play sports. They have activities. Yes. They they have all of that. And Oh, except Noah tells them, yeah, but you didn't get to play with the Baylor quarterback. I played with the Baylor quarterback. And this <laughs> I forgot about that. He, he did that too. Wow. He did with Charlie Brewer two years in a row. And I don't think you know this probably because we were so busy, but the second year when Charlie Brewer was there, we came in, we were running late that day, and I was, like, rushing Noah in. Remember, that was the year that we switched to the jersey jersey, and remember, he didn't want to wear the jersey jersey? He didn't want to wear it, right. And somebody gave him a hard time at the door, and so he was all out of sorts because somebody was like, come on, bud, just put on the jersey. And I was like, just leave him on. And so I'm, like, ushering him in, and as soon as we stepped down to that turf, Charlie Brewer walked right up to him and said, hey, Noah, you want to be TV today? And I mean, you should have just seen this kid. I mean, he just practically melted in a puddle. Like, sure, Charlie. <laughs> Whatever And you here want. we are, what, like four years later, and he still talks about it. I I love that so much. I, I love hearing you tell the stories because the joy in your voice, your medically fragile children are getting to be children. They're getting to be kids and do kids children. stuff and yep. play and 
like Mr. Rogers says, play is the work of childhood. Yeah. Every yeah. child deserves playtime. Yeah. Anytime we're training a nurse, um, when they're coming in our home, you know, their job is to be a nurse. They're, they're here because Hannah qualifies based on medical needs. And so many times they just, they're a nurse and they, it's medical and it's, it's time to give her meds. It's time to give her meds. And, and I always tell them, we want to approach it in a play manner. She is a child first. She is a young child first. And so if she's in the middle of changing her baby doll's diaper, you better get down on the floor, finish changing that baby doll's diaper, give the baby doll some medicine, and then you can give Hannah her medicine. And it's, it's an expectation in our home for therapists, nurses, carers, anybody that's in our home that they're going to play with our children first because they are children first. Yes. yes, they need medical procedures done. Yes, the medical procedures are not a choice, but we're going to make it fine. We're going to give them choices throughout. So do you want to do this medicine first or this medicine first? Do you want to go to the bathroom first or take medicine first? You know, we, we give them choices. We give them control. We give them power so that they can feel in control in, in such a world where they have no control. Okay, you, you mentioned nurses. So um, there have been times when I have heard a family saying they have a night nurse. So I have ignorantly thought, okay, so the night nurse handles everything and you go to bed. I now know that is not what a night nurse does. Um, kind of walk through what a quote-unquote night nurse does for your family. Yeah, so um, we've had some amazing night nurses over the years. Um, a couple in particular that I would give anything to have back. Um, so usually every family, it varies. Um, they'll come for us. We don't have them come until our kids are down. Um, much like a typical family, anytime it gets around bedtime, it's mass chaos. And so adding another adult into the mix, this doesn't help. So we don't have them come until our kids are all in bed. Um, and so they will attend to any medical needs for that child throughout the night. Now, we have had some amazing night nurses who... I had one night, Noah woke up in the middle of the night and threw up, and the nurse changed his sheets and changed his bedding, and that is not her job. She was there for Hannah, and the next morning, I felt so guilty. She was like, what are you to sleep? Um, and yeah, so there are amazing human beings out there who go above and beyond. Um, some of our night nurses are actually our most trusted people that we call on in an emergency um, to still come and care for Hannah. Um, when Jonathan's brother died, Last year at two in the morning, I called one of our old night nurses and she came over at four in the morning and cared for Hannah for four days um, while we walked through that. Um, so they're amazing human beings who come in and become a member of the family. Um, so they stay awake all night. They do any medical care for the child. The only thing is it kind of depends. Every child is a case like basis. If usually if they have to do anything PRN, like if the child's getting sick or if the child needs something, most of the time they have to wake the parent up to talk to them about it. Um, I always told them if she's in pain, you can give her Tylenol. Obviously, if she's having trouble breathing, you can start off buterol. I was the kind of parent that wanted to be involved. So it's like, if you think something's going on, wake me up. Let's try to start figuring it out. Um, the other thing is that if they have a medical crisis in the middle of the night, generally the nurse will always, the nurse will wake you up as well to intervene. Um, and I, I won't forget, we had one night nurse who banged real hard on our door because she was seizing and throwing up, and she was calling an ambulance. And it, it's just a lot. It's it, it's chaos. And um, so, I mean, they're they're angels in the middle of the night. Best so, way to put it. I'm so glad that 
that you have those angels. I think that there are several agencies that even use the word angels in in the their name. Um, yeah. So we've we've talked about kind of what what your life is like. What about when uh, during holidays or the Bear family annual vacation? You pack every, you pack everybody up and you go out of town and you have a blast and you make memories. Yeah. So some sometimes we actually did take a nurse with us on our Make a Wish trip. Um, so it kind of depends on your nursing agency and um, their preference, and then it also kind of depends on the nurse. Um, the nurse we had at that time was single and her kids were grown, so she was willing to go out of town with us. Um, but most of the time, the nurses are pretty young and have families and kids and that kind of stuff. Um, so it's kind of, it's kind of hit or miss. I know some families can get nurses to go and do stuff with them. Um, some families can't, but, um, yeah, her care doesn't stop. So if, or in, you know, none, none of their care stops, none of, none of the medicine stops, none of the needs stop, none of the stimmy stops, none of the meltdowns or tantrums stop. Um, in fact, we have a vacation coming up and my husband and I are planning on having a meltdown one-on-one meeting with our family before we go. So that way they all know what to do when one of our kids is melting down. Um, but yeah, so it, and none of it stops, you know, you just, you just go do it somewhere else. Um, we, we usually have to take a trailer with us to get all of her medical equipment with us. Um, so it all, it all goes, it all goes. And, um, we haven't gotten to take a vacation in a, in a long while, but we are planning one for February. Um, and come hell or high water, we're going, even if she's in the hospital, we'll go the week after. Well, we are, we are going to find a way. You said it's been a while. Wasn't it 2015 the last time y'all got to go on a it vacation? Was. It was. Yep. Yep. Her make a wish in 2000, September of 2015. Um, summer of 2019, we had a vacation planned to go to the Great Smoky Mountains. We had a cabin rented, U-Haul rented, everything ready. And um, she had a little big seizure that week beforehand and ended up in the hospital with a urinary tract infection, UTI. UTI caused a giant seizure and landed us in the hospital for two weeks. And most people, most families would think, oh, it's just a UTI, but yep. it's life-threatening. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know, people think, oh, why can't you just plan it? You know, you can just go, oh, it's okay. Just give some antibiotics. You know, an infection for us is, is life-altering. An infection for us is intubation in the ICU. When you, when you have an autoimmune condition, and your immune system comes under attack, it, it doesn't know how to respond. Her, her immune system just doesn't respond. It has zero response. So she doesn't get white blood counts. You know, her white blood cells don't go up. Nothing happens. She has to be in the hospital because she requires so much antibiotics and, and monitoring because she doesn't fight it off herself at all. Sorry, I just needed to take a deep breath. Um. <laughs> Marsha, what do you want your local community and the world to know about accessibility and inclusion as you raise four children with specific medical needs? You know, sometimes when I think back, like if I won the lottery, I was a billionaire, I was in charge of the world. You know, sometimes the first thing that comes to your mind is like physical things, you know, like ramps everywhere, accessible changing tables, like, and don't get me wrong, those things would be amazing. But um, I was listening to Adam Grant, um, a psychologist podcast the other day, and he said, be a giver, not a taker. 
He said, through all of this research that he's done, overall, people are good, and their goal is to help others. They can only give what they understand. And then inherently, people want to give, and people want to do good. Just like today, when I, I met with the local company, and they started telling me about no limitations, they immediately were like, I've never heard of that. Sure, yeah, I'd love to help. You know, inherently, people want to give, but they can't give or do if they don't know. Right. So, so if, if I could have anything in the world, it would be a platform to educate people, to share so that others can know. Because once your eyes are seen and your ears have heard and you understand the need, very few people walk away. Most people are inherently good and inherently want what's best for others. And if, I, I firmly believe if others were educated, if they could understand that our family, while we might have special needs, it's just needs. It's just our family's needs. It's not any, yes, your family's needs and my family's needs are different, but they're both needs. And just because my family's needs might require a ramp or a hydraulic lift changing table or a handicapped parking spot that's not blocked, doesn't mean that we don't have the same right to those needs as your family does. That if, if we could get that education out there, if we could get that understood by people, that's all I want. Because I believe in humankind. I believe in hope. I believe in the goodness of people and that if, if they understood the need, we would see change. I think a lot of the lack of accessibility and inclusion is lack of education. I'm right there with you on that. And I am really looking forward to the future with you advocating um, and and working together. And I look forward to learning more from you as the mother of medically fragile children. I look forward to getting to know your children better. And I look forward to watching you change the world. Because it's, I want to. It, it's going to happen. Um so No Limitations is is this great organization that offers different activities, but the biggest thing is it's all free of charge. So what would you say if you could be face-to-face with everybody who has been a donor or a sponsor or even given $1, $5 to help the program and to keep it free for families like yours? What would you say you know, to those people? Um, last last year, after Hannah was life-led in Houston, we got we got the bill in the mail because insurance denied it because you know it wasn't medically necessary. Um, and you know the the life flight bill, just the helicopter, didn't include the the medical things they did on board or anything. Was two point four million dollars. Um, and obviously we fought it, and insurance won and paid for it. But the the weight that these families carry from therapy to medication to formula to diapers to pull-ups to sensory toys to wheelchair stroller. I mean, I the weight these families carry, despite that we fight to pay for these things that are life-sustaining for our kids, is unending. Unending. Yesterday when I talked to you, I just got on the phone with Medicaid. It is unending. So to have a program that's free, the weight, that's lifted off of these families. So so it's free. Your kid can come as they are. You can come as you are. You can volunteer. You don't have to volunteer. And your kid can be 
a kid. It, it, I don't. I don't have the words. There. There are no words. I don't think the sponsors could understand the depth of what it means to us because it is undescribable. Um, thank you is not enough because it's undescribable. If I if I had a better word for it, I would use a better word for it. But I, I don't have a better word for it. That's. I think that my mission in life is to find a better word than thank you. Right. Um, because there there needs to be something um, for the the people who keep this program free and also for warrior moms like you who continue to allow me to be in your life and to ask you these questions and to learn from you. And I just, you know that I have the utmost admiration for you. And I know you don't like when people say, I don't see how you do it. Um, <laughs> but I, I think that we just don't know what else to say. So I don't right. know how you do it has to suffice in the same way that thank you has to suffice. Yep. Yep. It's, it's true. And, and, and that's, that's a mission of mine to come up with phrases for people um, so that they know what to say. Well, let's wrap it up, Marsha. Um, thank you so much. Um, again, you are a true warrior mom Thank you for letting us into your world and for sharing your story. And you and your Bayer Zoo keep living that no limitations life. And I want to say a special thank you to show producer, Mr. Mike. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us for Straight Out of Limitations. Colleen Heaton, director of No Limitations, a unique nonprofit in Central Texas offering free adaptive sports and inclusive social activities to the special needs community. Straight Out of Limitations is made possible by Rogue Media Network. RogueMediaNetwork.com. You can find this podcast and many more wherever you get your podcasts iTunes, Spotify, and the like. Make sure you like, subscribe, and share us with all your friends. For info on how you can become a No Limitations athlete or volunteer, check out our website, nolimitationswaco.com, or connect with us on social media, No Limitations Waco on Facebook or No Limitations Texas on Instagram. Special thanks to Titus for the use of his song, No Limitations. It's a different day, no one can say, and I've been patient. Yeah, but anyway, man, in a way, can't stop my greatness. And we on the way. This has been a Rogue Media Podcast.